This morning's reading is from the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 9. I'm going to read from verse 2 onwards. Mark chapter 9, verse 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. And there he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice from the, came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. And suddenly when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. And as soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. The man in the crowd answered, teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus. Everything is possible for one who believes. And immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. They left that place and passed through Galilee. And Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. And he said to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. And they came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they'd argued about who was the greatest. 
And sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. And he took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, I want to encourage you to keep your Bible open. Um, Mark chapter 9, as we uh, look at these verses together. But before we do that, um, let's pause uh, and let's pray. Let's pray together. Our Father, our prayer this morning is uh, that which we have sung already. We ask, Father, that you would turn our eyes to Jesus. We pray that as we turn our attention to Scripture, that we might see Him more clearly, and that we might realize all that He has done for us and all that He demands of us. We pray that we might see and know these things so we might better understand His glory and His service. And we pray it in His name. Amen. Well, I know of a church uh, that sends aspiring pastors to the crash. They send aspiring pastors to the crash. In this church, whenever men approach the elders and the pastor and they say, I have an interest in pursuing pastoral ministry. I, I want to be a pastor uh, as a full-time vocation. The elders and the pastors of this church say, well, will you serve in the crash, please? See, sometimes, sadly, the desire to be in pastoral ministry is the desire to have a captive audience once a week on a Sunday to be able to say whatever we want to be able to say. But the office is really about service. And so this church sends their aspiring pastors to the crash to serve, to demonstrate a willingness to deal with small people gently, to clean up all manner of bodily fluids, to care for the least, to be hidden out the back there somewhere, looking after those who are unlikely to be able to thank them for their service. All of that degree that demonstrates to a degree a servant-heartedness. And so if the young men in this church I'm talking about agree to go and serve in the crash, well, the pastors and elders think perhaps they have what it takes. If the young men do not agree to go serve in the crash, well, they're unlikely to be considered as pastors in the future. Perhaps it's a tough lesson, but the way of Jesus is the way of servanthood. The way of Jesus is the way of servanthood. And in this passage, which Andrew's just read for us, we both see and hear of the servant heart of the most glorious servant, Jesus Christ. This episode occurs in the central section of Mark's gospel, which runs from chapter 8, verse 22, through to chapter 10, verse 52. And in this section, Mark urges his readers, keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. For in doing so, we see the most wonderful and remarkable of things. Uh, and in this section of chapter 9, what we see is that there is no glory without service. There's no glory without service. And so with our eyes on Jesus, 
we will first see that Jesus is glorious overall. And then secondly, we will see that Jesus is servant of all. First of all, we see that Jesus is glorious overall. Verses 2 through to 29 record two different events that happen one after the other. Uh, and Jesus is seen, in, seen to be glorious over all in these two events. But as he's seen to be glorious over all, this is affirmed by both the divine and the demonic. First, we see that Jesus is declared glorious by the divine. The, the transfiguration reveals Jesus' glory. Jesus' closest disciples are, are privy to an incredible moment. Look again at verses 2 through to 4. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Throughout the Gospels, we find that Peter, James, and John form an inner circle of Jesus, or inner circle of disciples who are with Jesus most intimately. And here they ascend the mountain with him and see him transfigured. The, the term transfigured conveys the idea of radical external transformation, visible transformation. Verse 3 elaborates that for us. His clothes became radiant, intensely white. Not only is Jesus' appearance changed, but he's then joined by two key prophetic figures, Moses and Elijah. Peter responds immediately to this incredible moment in verses 5 and 6. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. There's evidently confusion and panic. Peter is clearly flustered here at what he's seen. I remember the first time I met Mark Dever. He's the pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church. He's authored numerous books, and he's a leader in the world of nine marks. Uh, and it was in the foyer of Capitol Hill Baptist Church. I was walking through it to go into the main building where the church met. Uh, and as I walked through it, uh, I felt this tap on my shoulder. And so I turned around, and I turned to see Mark Dever handing me a bulletin and then extending his hand to introduce himself. Hi, I'm Mark to which I involuntarily responded, I know. You could see almost in his brain the clogs ticking, thinking, oh no, not another one of these boys. I was taken by surprise. It wasn't what I was expecting. I didn't know what to do. And so something stupid came out. Yeah, I know who you are. And it's the same for Peter here. He's taken by surprise. He doesn't know what to say. And so something silly comes out. And that means that God the Father has to speak to clarify the situation, to clarify matters. Verses 7 and 8. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. This declaration makes it clear that Jesus stands in a special relationship to the Father. He has come to fulfill a particular mission, a prophetic mission, it seems, as the disciples are told to listen to him. As Jesus and the disciples then descend the mountain after this event, they discuss it in verses 9 through 13. 
And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked them, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. This revelation of Jesus' glory in the transfiguration will only make sense once Jesus is raised from the dead. But even that note is cryptic to the disciples. So this is an incredible event. And we need to pause and apply this episode before moving on. In short, what the transfiguration does is it displays Jesus as glorious. He is the beloved of God. He possesses an intimate relationship with the Father that no one else does. And that is because he himself is God in the flesh. The divinity of Jesus is merely implicit in this passage, but it's explicitly clear throughout the rest of Scripture. Jesus is also glorious in his authority. The disciples are to listen to him. This prophetic element of the transfiguration is often overlooked, but note that both Elijah and Moses appear on the mountain with Jesus. They're two key prophetic figures from the Old Testament. And in verses 12 and 13, we see that John the Baptist served as a second, of, a second Elijah. Verse 13, when Jesus says, but I tell you that Elijah has come, he's talking about John the Baptist. He's come and paved the way for the coming of Jesus. But did you realize that there's a second Moses to come? This is what we read in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 15. Moses is talking to the people of Israel. And he says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And then in verse 18, the Lord is speaking to Moses and he says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak them to all that I command him. Jesus is this new prophet. He is a second Moses. And so we, like this inner circle of disciples, must listen to him. God demands as much of us. He's declared glorious by the divine. And these truths should affect us. We should be in awe of this Jesus. One who is beloved of God, who speaks with divine authority. When we glimpse these portraits of Jesus in the Gospels, it should take our breath away. We should be in awe of him. Too many of us are like my friend. He's thoroughly unimpressed and uninspired by everything. Once we went to County Kerry for a weekend and we were standing outside the Avuka and Malls Gap. If you've ever been in the Kerry Mountains, absolutely astonishing place. Standing outside this Avuka and Malls Gap, looking down over the valley, the beautiful scenery, the lovely mountains, the river, the fields, the trees. And so I stood there looking at this beauty of creation before getting back into the car. My friend stood beside me for about a minute and then said, what are you looking at? God's beautiful creation. 
but he was unimpressed, unmoved. And too often we're like that with Jesus. We read these episodes and just flick the page to the next thing. Totally unmoved by his majesty. If we are not awed by Jesus, we need to ask ourselves, do we truly know him? So let me ask you the question this morning. Are you in awe of Jesus? Does his majesty amaze you? If not, I want to encourage you to go home and ponder this transfiguration. See the glory of Christ afresh. But Jesus is not only declared glorious by the divine. Second, we see that he's declared glorious by the demonic. The exorcism which is recorded next also reveals Jesus' glory. Jesus and his closest disciples, they come down from the mountain and they find a chaotic commotion taking place at its foot. Look at verses 14 through to 19. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. It appears that while Jesus, Peter, James, and John were up the mountain, the other disciples had failed to heal a boy possessed by an evil spirit. Chaos reigns in this scene. The disciples are impotent in the face of evil. The scribes are smug, pointing out the futility on show. And in the middle of all of that, there's this father mourning the desperate situation that his son is in. And in all of this, Jesus despairs at the faithless people he walks among. But Jesus is full of both compassion and power. Look at verses 20 to 27. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately the boy, it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. Notice first Jesus' compassion. It's subtly communicated in several ways. The question in verse 21 shows Jesus' interest in the circumstances. He doesn't just want to heal him. He wants to find out about him. The graphic description of the plight of the boy elicits sympathy. It's been this way for a long time. The gentle touch in verse 27 underscores all of this. Jesus is compassionate. But also see Jesus' power. 
He heals a boy who has suffered for a long time in this way. This isn't just a single episode that passes. This has happened to him repeatedly. Verse 23, he declares, all things are possible. He's powerful. He commands the demon by the power of his voice, verses 25 and 26. He simply speaks and it goes. He raises the boy from the dead or from the near dead in verse 27. In fact, the evil spirit's response to Jesus is telling. Initially on seeing Jesus in verse 20, it convulses the boy. The mere sight of Jesus is enough to terrify it. And then on the command of Jesus, the spirit is compelled to obey, verses 25 and 26. This episode declares that Jesus is the more powerful one. And this note that the demon could only be driven out by prayer, verses 28 and 29. The disciples enter the house and they ask Jesus privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said, then this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This note indicates the necessity of authoritative divine power to defeat the demonic. And that's what we see here in Jesus. Power. Listen to this recollection of someone who who used to work in a casino. Uh, He used to work in a casino that put on shows with wild cats, big cats. Uh, And his job was wheeling the cat out onto the stage in its cage. This is what he writes. I learned a valuable lesson from this when one night I was wheeling the panther out to the curtain. She was in what was basically a reinforced acrylic aquarium on casters with a velvet cloth draped over it. A few minutes before my cue, I thought the drape was falling to one side and I lifted it to even it out. It was then that I was face to face with this pet. In nothing but faint stage lights and about four inches of transparent acrylic between us, she looked at me with those yellow-green eyes, gave me a low, almost muted growl, and flashed just enough of her teeth to let me know this was no pet. Raw power. And that's only a fraction of the power and ferocity of Jesus. Jesus is divinely authoritative, letting out a low growl, almost muted, that sends evil spirits fleeing. And once again, applying this should affect us. Whatever we face, Jesus is the more powerful one. The demon in the boy, the smug scribes poking fun at the disciples, the faithless disciples themselves, this dad in a a mess with his child, Jesus is more powerful than all of it. And so too with the circumstances in our life. What are you facing this morning? What's the big black cloud that isn't shifting? Well, here's the good news. Jesus is more powerful. The glory of Jesus is not merely visible atop a mountain in a radiant glow, but it's also visible in the dirty, dusty battle at the foot of that mountain. In either scenario, Jesus' authority is unrivaled. He stands apart. And as a result, even the weakest faith is powerful as long as it's placed in him because he is the more powerful one. What a comfort to us this morning. 
No matter what we face, no matter our confidence in facing it, as long as we do so with Jesus, we need not fear. Jesus is the more powerful one. He is glorious overall. And all of that is vitally important because he is servant of all. In verses 30 to 37, the closing verses of our passage this morning, with eyes on Jesus, we quickly realize that even though he is glorious above all, he is servant of all. Now, this section of our passage contains the second foretelling of Jesus' impending death and resurrection in this middle segment of Mark. The first is in chapter 8, verses 34 to 38. The second is here in chapter 9, verses 30 to 32. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Evidently, there's been a move away from the crowds and the commotion in order to permit Jesus to, to teach his disciples more intimately. And he makes it clear to them that he must die and rise. Son of man is Jesus' favorite title for himself in Mark's gospel. He's talking about himself. He's saying, I must die and rise. But the disciples fail to understand what this means. They don't have a category for a crucified Messiah, and they certainly don't have a category for a resurrected Messiah. But worse than misunderstanding Jesus' words, they misunderstand his character. After the embarrassment of Peter on the mount during transfiguration, we witness another embarrassing situation in verses 34, 33 and 34. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Can you believe this? After what they've just experienced, the transfiguration, the healing of this demon-possessed boy, and then they're following Jesus who's striding purposefully towards Jerusalem with the cross and his imminent death in view, the disciples are walking behind him saying, no, I'm the best, I'm the best, it's me. It's ludicrous. They're jostling for position and prominence in the presence of Christ. Jesus notes this, asks them, and as one commentator writes, the silence of the disciples is a wordless confession. They know they've got it wrong this time. And so Jesus takes the time to explain the kind of attitude that his disciples must have if they're to be known as his Verses 35 to 37. And he sat down and called the twelve and said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Servant-heartedness is necessary. The child is not the example. It's Jesus' treatment of the child that is the example here. In the first century, children might be seen, but they were never heard, certainly never entertained in this way. 
And yet here is Jesus taking a child and placing him in the middle of the disciples and folding him in his arms. Jesus is willing to serve the lowly. If he had been in the church that I mentioned at the beginning, he would happily go serve in the crash. One TV character offers this wise advice. Don't go chasing applause and acclaim. That way lies madness. Don't go chasing applause and acclaim. That way lies madness. And, and so the lesson jumps off the pages of Mark's gospel for us. We must be servant-hearted. If Jesus is servant of all, then so too his disciples. One commentator says, Christology leads to discipleship, and discipleship flows from Christology. That is, who Jesus is impacts how we follow him. And that's what we see in this passage. We see clearly who Jesus is, glorious over all. And that means we must follow him as a servant of all. And this servanthood is, is most poignantly portrayed in the cross, which we're going to remember in just a moment around the table. For there, Jesus Christ, the only person who never sinned, suffers the penalty for sin, death. And yet this service of death paves the way for the glory of resurrection. It's what Jesus himself says in verse 31, isn't it? The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. And as Jesus' disciples, it's the same for us. The road to glory leads through the valley of suffering. We must be servant of all like Jesus before we can be glorious overall in our resurrection. That's the path that we must walk. So are you willing to serve in the crash? Are you willing to crawl around on your hands and knees, cleaning up after others? Or are you back there with the disciples, jostling for position and prominence? Keeping our eyes on Jesus reveals who he is, and it reveals the demands that he places on us as his people. One commentator puts it this way. Glory comes through self-sacrificial service demonstrated in Jesus' suffering and death. Followers of Jesus need to understand, acknowledge, and apply this reversal of values. Their thinking and their behavior must be shaped by the self-sacrifice of Jesus who gives his life for the benefit of others. That's what must shape our life. Not the domination that characterizes the world. Not attempting to promote ourselves, but service for the good of others. Only in this way can we become glorious servants and emulate our Savior, Jesus Christ, the ultimate glorious servant. Let's pray. Jesus, we praise you for all of your glory. We praise you that you are the divinely authoritative one, that you are indeed glorious over all. And so we praise you all the more for your service, 
for your perfectly obedient life, for your death in our place, for your resurrection, ascension, and enthronement at the Father's right hand. We praise you that this work has made it possible for us in faith and repentance to become your people. And we pray that as your people, by the power of your Spirit, that you would shape us to be like Christ, to serve for the benefit of others, for the good of your church, for the glory of your name. Amen.